We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the book of the Revelation, chapter 3, and we shall read from verse 14. Revelation 3, from verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with thyself that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him, and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And may the Lord be pleased to add his blessing once again to this reading of his word. And we return as unable to consider further the message a very serious and a very solemn and a very searching message to the church of the Laodiceans, the church that was in such a sorry state that the Savior, who loved the church and gave himself for it, is saying, I am about to spew thee out of my mouth. Your condition is such that it is nauseating. Now, this surely should make us think, what kind of a condition can anyone be in that will be so sickening and so nauseating to the one who came into this world to seek and to save sinners? Surely he saves men and women out of all kinds of sinful conditions. Here we must be solemnized when we read what the Amen, the great Amen says, not just to the church, but about the church. 
We know that last Lord's Day, it's real condition, and we were concluding, concentrating upon the counsel that the glorified Christ was giving to this church and because of its particular condition. He said different things to the other churches because their conditions were different. What he says here is what is necessary. He is the true witness. And if you and I are wise, we will want to know what he thinks. And my dear friend, you will want to know what he thinks about you. You will never rely on your own assessment of your own condition. And you will not rely on what anyone else has to say about your condition either. This is the faithful witness telling nothing but the truth to the church here in Laodicea. Now, you just imagine, if you were in that church, you were in that assembly, And this letter arrives, and the Sabbath day comes, and everyone gathers, the intimation is made, we have received a very important letter from John the Apostle from the Isle of Patmos. And the angel of the church, the minister, stands up and begins to read it. Now you imagine whenever they're all dismissed and they are all parting and they're leaving the assembly, well, you might ask someone, what was it like in there today? Maybe they might, well, I really didn't pay a lot of attention. I know there was a letter read, but... I didn't think it applied much to me, so I didn't really pay a lot of attention. Someone else, what took place in there today? Well, my friend, I got my eyes opened. I never before realized the state we are in. I never before ever imagined we were in the low spiritual state we're in. It is a sobering situation. It is solemn what we have heard. I never knew before my need of repentance. But we have to go home and repent. And we have to change our ways. We have to acknowledge that Christ is not pleased with us. And we have shut him out. We heard today that he's knocking at the door, seeking admission that he might come in and sup with us and have communion with us and us with him. We're out of communion with Christ. He is not where he ought to be 
in this church and Laodicea. Now that is very solemn. And as I said last week, those who were taking seriously what they would hear, what would they be saying? I was rebuked today. I felt the severity of Christ's rebuke. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Do you imagine this congregation of people, this assembly, were all parting, laughing, Joking, smiling, having a grand old conversation after hearing this. They're going home with bowed heads and bowed hearts because they've been rebuked. And they have been told in no uncertain terms that they need to change their ways And they need to change their attitudes. And they need to begin to seek Christ in a more serious fashion than they've been doing. The condition here in this church is worse than any of the others. And you might say, well, when I read the messages to the seven churches, it doesn't appear that way to me. After all, some of the other churches were permitting false doctrine to come in. Some, even one church had to be rebuked in Thyatira for permitting that wicked woman Jezebel to be prophesying among them. There is nothing, no mention of heresy, no mention of lack of discipline, no lack of order. There's no rebukes for false teaching or false doctrine. There's nothing of that anywhere here mentioned in the message to this church. So how can they be so bad? The fact is, as we said, it was exceedingly bad because They couldn't do anything about it because they didn't even know what their state was. Imagine if they're poor and they're blind and they're naked and they're ignorant and they don't know it. Well, what are they going to do about it? They don't appreciate their state. If you didn't feel ill, why would you go to the doctor? If you didn't have any illness, why would you seek medication? And here's the church. They need of nothing. Because we feel confident. We feel good about ourselves. We feel quite satisfied. We're doing the right thing and we're in a good state. We're a healthy church. We're in a healthy condition. They did not appreciate 
their own state and their own condition. And Christ could have left them that way. But he says, as many as I love, I rebuke. And my dear friends, if you don't know Christ's rebuke, you have to question whether you have ever been born again of the Spirit of God. As many as I love, I rebuke. Because I don't want them going straying. I don't want them in a backslidden state. I don't want them ignorant of their condition. I desire them to know. And here he comes to tell them here in the church of their condition. But he doesn't just rebuke them and chastise them. But he counsels them. He counsels them. Now, what a great marvel this is that here in the closing book of the canon of Scripture, we have this very mention of the church and Lady Asia being rebuked, or being not just rebuked, but counseled. Way back in the Old Testament, in the prophecy of Isaiah, in the ninth chapter, we have an amazing prophecy of the promised Redeemer. And in verse 6 of Isaiah 9, we read these words, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. The mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. You know what Jesus prayed in John 17? He prayed that those who were his sheep might have an accurate knowledge of God and of Christ. This is life eternal, he says, that they might know thee. That they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And who is this Jesus Christ who has been sent? Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. This is the one that Jesus said, the evidence that they have eternal life is this, they know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent as Counselor. Now, if you don't know Christ is your counselor. Do you know Christ at all? My sheep, he says, hear my voice, and they follow me. I am their counselor. I am their teacher. I am their advisor. His name is Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, 
the Prince of Peace. Now here we have the Counselor himself, and he is counseling the church here. These people are in this sorry state and condition, and he tells them that they are to come, and they are to buy, verse 18 of Revelation 3, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and so on. Now, we looked at that, and we were engaged in considering his standing at the door knocking. Can you imagine that? You see, sometimes we get ourselves into theological tangles. And when we come to a portion of truth, we think, well, now, where does this fit into my theological system? How do I put this into the particular pigeonhole that it really should fit into? What we have to do is forget about our rationalizing and reasoning out divine revelation and accept what God says. And here is Christ saying to the church here of the uh, Laodiceans, I'm standing outside. You have closed me out. You have closed me out. Now they might be thinking, well, how can that possibly be? There's no heresy among us. We're the most ordered church. We've got everything in order. All the externals of our worship are correct. Our theology is sound. Everything's correct as far as we can see. You have closed me out. I am not at the heart of the life of the church. I am not where I ought to be. I stand knocking. Now, isn't that something? That he stands knocking. And what does he say? I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice... What way is he knocking? He's knocking with his voice. He's knocking every time he speaks. You go back with me to the Song of Solomon. There you see the situation with the church depicted there in chapter 5 of Song of Solomon. Here's the church, as it were, speaking herself. Verse <coughs> 2 of Song of Solomon 5. I sleep, but my heart waketh. Now you depict the scene. This woman is sleeping. And yet, something's bothering her. She's not able to rest. She can't sleep properly. I sleep, 
But my heart waketh. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh. It's not his hand. It's his voice that's knocking. He's knocking as he speaks. She's in a state of slumber. But she is a, my heart is aroused because my beloved is knocking, saying, open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled, for my head is filled with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. What's his voice saying? I have come through the Jew. I have come because of my love for you. I have come to commune. I have come to fellowship. What's her response? Ah, I have put off my coat. How shall I put it on? Don't you know that I've retired for the evening? I put off my coat. Why do you come wanting me to put it on again? I have put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I have washed my feet. How shall I defile them? In other words, putting it simply... I don't want to be disturbed. I want to remain at peace and rest, to relax. You can see how selfish the church is depicted here. It is the voice of my beloved, but I don't love him enough. To be disturbed. I don't love him enough to be troubled, to get up, to exert myself, to give him my attention, to show an interest in him. He has displayed his love for me, but I am not, although it is the voice of my beloved, I recognize it, I would recognize that voice anywhere. My love for him is not that which exerts me and causes me with a heart aflame with love for him to shake myself out of my sloth. My beloved put in his hand by the hole of the door and my bowels were moved for him. I rose up. You see what happens here? I have put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I've washed my feet. How shall I defile them? My beloved put in his hand by the hole of the door and my bowels were moved for him. At the first I was complaining. Didn't want to be disturbed. But that was the hand of my beloved. He put it in at the door. 
ready to open it. But when I told him that this was a trouble to me, how shall I put it on? I put it on with a complaint. How shall I get dust on my feet again? Well, I'll rise, but my heart isn't in it as it should be. There isn't this immediate response. There isn't this heart desire that immediately responds. So after a little reflection, what do I do? I rose up to open to my beloved And my hands dropped with mare, and my fingers with sweet-smelling mare upon the handles of the lock. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had withdrawn himself. He's withdrawn. Why? Because of my slothfulness. Because of my complaint. Because I don't mean, because I don't, he does not mean to me what he ought to mean. He hath withdrawn himself and was gone. Have you ever known that experience? You ever known that experience when you should have been listening to his voice and the word? He put his hand in at the door. Let's have fellowship around the truth. And it was a bit of a problem, wasn't it? A bit of a burden. A bit troublesome. A bit irritating because when duty is calling... There's some pleasure. There's some otherworldly enjoyment. There's some reason, some excuse. And then when we eventually shake ourselves up and we come to the word, he's gone. We get nothing out of it. We might as well read the newspaper We get nothing out of it. He's gone. Because he didn't mean so much to us as he should have done. Other things were more important. Here we have the church saying, My soul field. My soul field. It's as though she felt I've lost him. I'm being punished now. My soul field. When he speak, I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. Here's the affliction now for the slothfulness and the complaining spirit. He's gone and crying out into the night. I would welcome him back. I would gladly have him return, but he's gone. 
His sensitive spirit has been so offended that he's gone. And now she has to go and seek him in the streets. Here back in the Revelation, the church here of the Laodiceans, Christ is saying, Behold, because it does seem something strange and unusual. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, just like in the Song of Solomon. I am ready and willing to come in and sup, and I will bring me, bring with me the Gold that's tried in the fire, I will bring with me the white raiment, I will bring with me the eye salve, I will bring all that will meet your needs, I will bring it with me. And when you have me, you will have all these blessings with me. But without me, you will have nothing. And without me, you can do nothing. That's the message to the church here. Knocking at the door of the conscience. Knocking at the door of the affections. Knocking at the door of the will. Ah, my dear friend, stop for a moment. Is Christ knocking because you've shut him out? Is he calling today, seeking to bring the blessings of the gospel and the blessings of grace to you? But your mind is elsewhere. Your heart is somewhere else. Child of God, if you're a child of God, you will know in your experience, exactly what took place as recorded in the Song of Solomon. And you will know the feeling of the heart because you didn't give attention when you should have done. You didn't attend upon the things that were important when you should have done. You wanted to concentrate upon Something else. Don't disturb me now. I'm enjoying myself. I'm enjoying this little pleasure. I'm enjoying this little activity. Don't annoy me. Don't disturb me. Don't make any demands upon me. And what do you say to Christ? Give me another half hour. And then I'll pay full attention. When I'm finished with this little routine, at the end of the day when I've spent it pleasing myself, I'll give all my attention to the things of God. And when you do, what happens? It's all dead, it's all dry, it's all barren. He's gone. The heart feels because He's gone. Oh, he may return, yes. 
And you may find him after the soul searches. But temporarily the pain of his absence has to be experienced as a chastisement. Now here in the church, here's the condition of this people. He's knocking and he's saying, I will come in if there's anyone will hear my voice, will open the door. I will come in. Now you will notice something. In the previous, the message to the previous church, what did the Lord say to this weak church, this church without strength? I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. Because he is the key of David. And he shuts and no man opens. And he opens and no man shuts. Why doesn't he just open the door here? Is it not possible that he can force his way in? That he can demand this door to open? Why does he not do it? Because, you see, he will only suck in a fellowship of love, in a communion of genuine affection. My dear friend, you and I must realize Christ will not impose himself on anyone. He will not force himself on anyone. He will not force himself on you. He will offer himself to you. He will reveal himself in all the beauty of his grace. And he will offer himself to you as he does here. But he will not force himself upon you. And you must remember that. And here's the Savior knocking at the door. I will come in. I offer you. Come to me. As in Isaiah 55, O everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. He that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy without money. Wherefore do you spend your money? And that which is not bread, come to me, buy without money. Take it freely. Receive me and it all comes with me. And here's what Christ is saying. Your condition will change only as you receive me. Only when you return to me and as you sup with me. Now, we go back to the previous Verse 19. Because all this that is happening is all evidence of his undying love for his people. Yes, you have forgotten me, but I have not forgotten you. You have neglected me, but I will never neglect you. 
What a moving scene we have here. Church that has neglected Christ, and yet there he is, knocking and calling, rebuking because he loves them, rebuking his people because he cares for them, chastening them, humbling them, because his heart goes out for them. Now, what does he counsel them to do then? Not only to buy of him gold and raiment and so on, but he counsels them, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Well, what will we repent of? We've got no false doctrine to repent of. We've got no heretical views to repent of. We've got no false worship to repent of. What ought we to repent of? Be zealous, therefore. Note that word, therefore. Be zealous, therefore. Why? Because as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten for the sake of my love. Because of my love for you, be zealous and repent. I desire you. You must desire me. Be zealous, therefore. That was the requirement of this church. Be zealous and repent. Now, this is almost, as it were, the final word to these seven churches. And here's the Savior saying to his church, Be zealous, therefore. And the first thing they need to be zealous about is their repentance. A zealous, genuine, hearty repentance. What are they to repent about then? They have to repent about their attitude to Christ their lack of interest in him, and their lack of zeal for him. Now, as I said last Lord's Day, it's very possible that we can become very pharisaical and we can compare ourselves with others. and We might say here, well, we're the free Presbyterian church here in Grafton. We haven't changed since we came into existence. All our office bearers, they subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Other churches have abandoned their confession and their creeds. We have not. We are orthodox. We are sound. 
We have biblical worship. We have Reformation teaching. We adhere to Reformation principles. We stand where Luther stood and Calvin stood and Knox stood. We can trace our history and our position back to the Covenanters, back to the Reformers. We haven't altered our position theologically since ever we come into existence. In fact, we came into existence as a protest against heterodoxy and compromise. Now, ought the Lord not to be pleased with us. We are sound. How many churches do you find testifying that way? We're very sound here. We've got the Westminster Confession of Faith. We've got the three forms of unity. We've got biblical worship. We've got sincerity. We've got everything correct outwardly. We are sound. Yes, sound, sound asleep, sound asleep in our orthodoxy. That's the real danger. And this danger is set before us here. What's lacking here? Zeal. Spiritual zeal is lacking. No denunciation of false teaching or false preaching. Nothing of that. But because I love you, I'm going to disturb you. You may have all the externals, but you don't have zeal. Now, how important is zeal? What is the zeal that we ought to have? What zeal should we have here in this very congregation? You see, but we're the the soundest church in Grafton. We're Presbyterian, we're Orthodox, we're... Nobody could, nobody could point the finger at us and say, well, this is not scriptural and that's not scriptural and so on. What does here the Savior require? Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Now, what is this zeal? We read from that chapter in Romans, Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 10. And Paul knew from experience how zealous these people were. Verse 1 of Romans 10, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record. I can testify to it. I can witness. I bear them record that they have a zeal. They have a zeal of God, but 
not according to knowledge. There's such a thing as a good zeal and a dangerous zeal. And you know, zeal is something we all recognize. It's not something that we have to uh, ask questions about and discuss because we have no idea what zeal is. We see it all around us every day. You see the thousands when they go to their sporting events, their rugby matches, their soccer matches, whatever, and there they are in their thousands. They're not ashamed to let it be known which team they support. And there they are cheering and they're full of zeal. They'll travel miles and spend a fortune. Why? Because their heart's in it. And they're enthusiastic. And they want to enthuse everyone around them in the same direction. You and I can recognize enthusiasm and zeal when we see it. So we should be able to recognize the lack of it when we see it. And if the poor, blinded, ungodly are so zealous for things that are fleeting and passing and empty and useless, in reality, shame on us if we have no zeal for the kingdom of Christ. But this is what we have to recognize, the importance of knowledge. What Paul says is this, I bear them record that they have a zeal. Oh, there's no question they have a zeal. Jesus himself recognized that zeal because he said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, what do you do? You will cover land and sea. You will go to any length to make one single proselyte. And when you've made him, you've made him uh, tenfold the child of hell. But the Savior recognized the zeal that was there. You would span the earth to win one soul to your views. Zeal. Paul recognized it without knowledge, however. And that is a big problem. Very particularly among young Christians. And you will see it all over the place. Here's someone, a young man, young woman. They become a Christian. Now, my dear young friend, the thing for you to do now is start serving Christ. But but wouldn't I need to learn something? No, 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 no. You just get at it. You serve Christ. Where should I start to read my Bible? Oh, just anywhere, but long as you serve Christ. You get at it. You become active. You become a zealous, energetic Christian. Don't you love Christ? Of course I do. Well, then serve him. And they're encouraged 
to express zeal, and they may be due, without knowledge. And there are lots of people around, and there are plenty of zeal, but they're as ignorant as they come. Zeal without knowledge is dangerous. My dear friend, for Christ's sake and the sake of, for the sake of souls around you, do you want knowledge? Are you seeking the knowledge of God and the knowledge of His truth, the knowledge of His Word? Because it is the knowledge that produces the zeal. And you see, because they had knowledge of the law, they were zealous for the law. The knowledge of the ceremonies and circumcision and the commandments of men, so they were zealous. The child of God can only be zealous in a good, edifying, proper manner when they have knowledge. My dear friend, are you praying constantly, Lord, teach me, improve my knowledge, I'll work at it, I'll toil at it, I want to know, I want to know the scriptures, I want to know the doctrines of scripture, I want to know the things of God, so that I may indeed be a help to some other poor soul. Zeal without knowledge is most Dangerous, the Apostle Paul himself in the Acts uh, chapter 22, he even referred to his own past. And he says, verse 3 of Acts 22, I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city of Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous. Boy, was I zealous. I was determined that wherever I would go, I would bring the law with me, and I would teach men the law, and I would require them to obey God's law. I was zealous. And I was determined to draw the attention of men, Jew or Gentile, to the law. And I was excluding Christ. I didn't want them to know anything of him. I was zealous toward God, as ye all are this day. The danger of zeal without knowledge. But we have to understand, as Paul writes to the this little epistle to Titus, in the epistle to Titus, we have Paul speaking of what is, uh, I believe, uh, expected of every true child of God. In the epistle of Titus, in the chapter 2, Paul writes this, Concerning Christ, verse 14 of Titus 2, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. What's peculiar about them? 
What is it that makes them peculiar in the world, in their society? They are zealous of good works. They are zealous. They just don't do the odd good work here and there. It is peculiar to them. Their hearts are enlarged. And their good works, not to obtain righteousness before God, but their works are good works because they are the works that come from a changed heart. Zealous of good works. They're recognized as a peculiar people of a peculiar zeal to do what's right, to do what's pleasing to God, not what pleases themselves, not what pleases their fellows, but what pleases God. But the thing that we emphasize is here, they're zealous. They're zealous. Their hearts are in it. Their hearts are in the business of serving Christ. Their hearts are really 100% in the business of pleasing God. And that distinguishes them. They're out in the world. They're surrounded by many others. And they have, they're zealous perhaps for sport, zealous for fashion, zealous for influence, zealous for all kinds of things. But what is peculiar about the child of God is this. They are zealous to please God, to do what is right before God. Now, When that zeal is real, you can't hide it. There's no point in you and I saying, ah, well, well, secretly I'm zealous. You know, I'm I'm not one of the gifted people. I'm not one of the extroverts. And I am very limited in what I can do or what I can hope to achieve, even by way of serving Christ. Turn with me to John's Gospel, and there we have an incident in the life of the Savior in John's Gospel, chapter 2. And the disciples were taking note of what was happening. John, chapter 2, the Savior goes into the temple. And we're told at verse 13 of John 2, the Jews' Passover was at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money sitting. When he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables. There was zeal with action. That's for certain. Oh, the Pharisees might have been furious. And they would have loved 
gather themselves together and take Jesus by the scruff of the neck and throw him right out. The one thing they do, whatever he's doing, he means business. Whatever he's doing, his heart is in it. He's really concerned about something, and he's doing something about it. He's not just talking, he's acting. Yes, he does talk. When he had made a scourge, he drove them all out, verse 16, and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. He didn't just say, take these things hence. He threw them out. His words and his actions were compatible. What about our actions and our words? The actions, do they confirm what we say, what we profess, what we claim? Here's then what happens. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. They were conscious. Boy, the Savior is really zealous. He really means business here. He's going to take no nonsense here. He's determined. And then they remembered the word of the Lord. You see, his zeal could not be hidden. They recognized it. My dear friends, let's be honest. Let's be frank and honest. People who know you and I attending this church, do they recognize any zeal? Do they? Do they believe we are a people who are zealous for God? Zealous for his word, zealous for his day, zealous for his worship, zealous for him? These disciples, they knew zeal when they saw it. But you know what it also teaches us? That it is zeal that confirms the word of God. Zeal, biblical zeal, Christian zeal, spiritual zeal, what does it do? It brings the word of God alive. Makes it live. Oh, the disciples, they had read these words, no doubt, on many occasions. They knew it was written, but boy, now, what are they thinking? This scripture is coming alive. The word of God is really coming alive now. We're seeing it lived in the life and the actions of Jesus Christ. And when to the ungodly out there. When do they take note of reality? When do they imagine the church is genuine? That it is real? Only when they see you and I 
actually live the scriptures, not talk about them, not quote them, not try to show how knowledgeable we are of them, but when we actually live them. But for the sake of time, very quickly, we may note in Second Corinthians and the chapter 9, just one other point with this we must conclude. Second Corinthians 9, Look at what we read, verse 1 of chapter 9, 2 Corinthians, for his touching the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know the forwardness of your mind, for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia and Achaia, was that Achaia was ready a year ago, look, and your zeal hath provoked Very many. Zeal is contagious. Genuine gospel zeal, genuine Christian zeal, spiritual zeal is contagious. And here's what Paul says to these believers. I even boast of you. I speak of you to encourage others. I tell others what you've done to stir them up. I tell them about your zeal in the hope that will infect them and it will make an impression upon them. Your zeal has stirred up many others. It has provoked them into zeal. My dear friend, Don't we realize we all have some kind of an influence one upon the other? Would you say before God, well, I know one thing, my zeal is genuine and my desire is that it would have an impact upon others, that it would influence others just like here, that it would provoke others to greater zeal for Christ and his truth? Or does our coldness and our indifference, our apathy, does that have a negative impact upon others? Zeal. Christ said the problem with the church is not heresy, False doctrine, false teaching, lack of order, lack of nothing of that. But you're lacking in zeal for me. Repent of it. Repent of your lack of zeal. Because my love should inflame that zeal. As he says, as I, as many as I love and I rebuke, and chasten, be zealous therefore, because I love you. My love should inflame that zeal for me, for my cause, my truth, whatever. Here's this church. They're dismissed. They're parting one from another. What are they saying to one another? What do you imagine they were saying? 
well, we do need a bit of a stirring up. We do need to be more zealous for the right things. That's surely what they were saying. What are we going to say to ourselves as we go from the service? Does it matter what we say? It matters to Christ. Will we go away saying, well, I feel very rebuked. I feel very chastened. And I'm going home to repent. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Gracious and eternal God, write thy truth upon our consciences. Stir us up, we pray. Uh, Do thou deliver us from a slothful spirit. Stir us up that we would be more devoted to thee, more enthusiastic for thy truth, thy cause, for the good of our perishing fellow sinners around us. Lord God, may we be enabled to provoke one another. May our personal zeal provoke our fellows around us to greater zeal, For Christ and his truth, bless us, pardon us, receive us. For Christ's sake, amen.